Okay, here we go. April 24th, 2011. Special First Fruits Lecture. Next Sunday, we will return to conclude uh, the murder of the woman in Judges 19, 20, and 21, and that war that, of course, occurs there between the Benjamites and the rest of Israel. We'll conclude that next week. And then what happens? We get to go back to where we belong, Romans chapter 3, which is how we got into this Judges 19, 20, 21 thing in the first place. Anyway, today's special First Fruits lecture is really an interruption of the intermission. And if you understand that, then please explain it to somebody else before they leave. And if it made no sense to you whatsoever, we like to say, welcome to Cliffside Community Chat. So this is the interrupting of the intermission today. And I do that because I specialize in confusing the visitor. Let me look if we have one. Hey, no visitor to confuse today. Brady doesn't count. He's been here before. But we do that. I do that every Sunday after Sunday. And, and not necessarily on purpose, I have to tell you that. I don't do it on purpose. Uh, it's mostly an inherent byproduct of my eccentricity. I really should say eccentricities because uh, plural would be more appropriate and more accurate. I'm just, so most of the time I'm not confusing people on purpose. I'm not to blame for it. I'm just saying. Though sometimes I am absolutely confusing people on purpose. I'm doing it deliberately. It's a design. It's premeditation. So really what you have is you have premeditation versus collateral damage. Sometimes it's just the way it goes. Sometimes I'm doing it on purpose. All of that to say, if I say something today that you don't understand, don't despair. Uh, uh, if it's unknown to you, that's okay. I get that a lot, by the way. I get If, if, I, if I could barrel or boil down the two... Uh, responses I get the most. One of them would be, by a wide margin, I did not ever hear this before. Most of you have said that to me almost on a regular basis. I've never heard that before. That's what I get number one. That's the most common. Second most common is, is that I didn't understand one single sentence in the entire sermon. I get that one. And, and believe it or not, both responses are exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. Which is good, because I'm nailing them, aren't I? I'm getting them both. So if I wasn't trying, that would be bad. But I really do sometimes try to get both of them. You see, I want you to know the deep things of God, and I know the deep things of God are hardly ever discussed in the church. That's why you never hear it before. That's why you tell me, why hasn't anyone ever said this to me? It's because the church has stopped doing it. So the obvious question is, is why have they stopped doing it? And I want you to know the deep things of God, the mysteries, the wisdom, the truths. And I want you to realize that the Bible, if you leave here thinking that this is easy, I have failed you. you will, I will regret it. I will stand before God and get a beating. The last thing I want someone to do, especially a visitor, is walk out of here going, I've heard all of this before, and that was really easy to understand, because then I have misrepresented God's wisdom, and that would be a horrible mistake. I want you to go, who writes a book like this? It's impossible for a human being to write this. Impossible. Can't be done. 
the interconnections. It's interconnected like your human body is interconnected. Everything in your body connects to something else in your body. And if you don't think so, well, there's lots of ways to explain this to you. The ones that come to mind aren't appropriate before a buffet. Try stopping to vomit, okay? Just try it. You can't. Your body is interconnected. Your brain, your nervous system, uh, your mind to your brain, your muscularities, all of your bone system, all of that. If anything is flawed or failing, it affects everything around it. The Bible is so interconnected. It's like the ecology of the earth. Uh, Everything is tied together. And you need to know that. A human being could not possibly write a book especially a series of human beings that couldn't possibly put this together. It is impossible, and therefore the obvious is that it is God. And I want you to know that there is so much here. It's his revealed intellect and character, and there are layers upon layers. And how do you understand it? How do you understand this Bible? You have to put time and energy and effort and will. You have to study. You have to care about it. Or you will come away with very little. In other words, it isn't for those who love the simple. Proverbs 1.22. Probably, if not the church motto, uh, scripture-wise, it ought to be. Loving the simple or, and wanting the simple is not something to be proud of. This, however, is our culture today, right? Is it not? Our culture today is lazy and frankly satisfied with ignorance. We, however, as ignorant as... Have you looked at the, our math scores? We rank at the bottom. Our science scores, we rank at the bottom. But how are we doing in self-esteem? Oh, we're really, really proud of ourselves. We all got a trophy. And this country is in serious trouble from a biblical standpoint. Europe is beginning to look at us and go, where is the scholarship? All you do is entertain. You don't ask your congregation to work. You don't ask them to think. You don't care. You want a big crowd and you're getting those. But your congregation intellectually is dying and is ignorant and loves the simple. And that is a tragedy. Don't be proud of it. However, the good news is everyone starts their journey to wisdom in the same place with a realization that they don't know what they don't know. That's how you start. Or what I like to call the unknown unknowns. And Rumsfeld stole it from me. But that's what they are. The unknown unknowns. You have to know what you don't know. Not knowing what you don't know is a bad problem. See, the next step after the unknown unknowns is the known unknowns, as I just said. And then what comes after the known unknowns? The known knowns. Right? That makes sense to you? Hope so. The known knowns are things you know that you know. That's a whole lot better than not knowing that you don't know. Which is what we call the perpetual state of the teenage mind. Okay, that concludes the seeker-sensitive, visitor-friendly portion of today's presentation. Or what I like to also call the disclaimer. If you invited somebody, what you needed to do is explain it to them. You know what I like about Lorenzo? He laughs at my jokes just about, just about ten seconds late. And that's my favorite part. I absolutely love that. I think they're a failure, and then he laughs, and I go... 
wasn't that bad a joke, but it takes cost me ten seconds every single time. But I'll take it. I'll take the ten seconds. If you've been coming, attending Cliffside for any length of time, you are aware that I rant and I have angst at Easter Ishtar and Chris, Christ Mass or Christ Sent. I have great difficulty. I'm frustrated. I have to endure them. And, and it's... Matt had a great line. Where's Matt? Where did Matt go? He's probably cooking. Matt, by the way, is a very good cook. Um, so whatever he's cooking is going to be good. But Matt called today and he said, I'm going to be late for the sermon. I don't need to come to the sermon because I learned everything I needed to know about Easter on Discovery this week. <laughs> and so I'm just coming for the food. And that was very funny, and I really appreciated the, the, because that's exactly, I can't stand this time of year, and I I really, it it just really destroys me emotionally after a while. I watched the Ishtar bunny parade around with the fertility chicken all over TV and and, and wherever else, and and churches with their Ishtar Easter fertility chicken egg hunts, which is, as you know, it's paganism. It's exactly, it is, uh, it is for girls only. There's nothing more ignorant than to have a young boy chasing after Easter eggs. Because the purpose of it is for the young woman to find the egg and then, of course, achieve fertility and pregnancy. That's what it is. So all you guys run, go find your eggs. I mean, what are you, crazy? And churches are doing this. That's what they do. And it just drives me nuts. And so I rant. Rabbits and eggs are classic fertility symbols. And, and how this has happened is a, is a great issue in the church today. It's a Revelation 3.16, by the way. Ishtar Easter is, after all, as you know, and this is a known known, and you should know this, you should know that Ishtar Easter is a Babylonian fertility celebration. That's what it is. Do we have Ishtar eggs? Ours are chocolate. That makes it okay. Doctrinally fine. They're chocolate. I'm kidding. But it's a Babylonian fertility celebration, and the obvious question, as I alluded to, then becomes, how did Ishtar Easter get into the church? Because the Bible, Scripture says, this day is the feast day of first fruits. It is the third of the seven feast days of God. He put seven in his scripture, in his intellect. He has established them, and this is the third. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. If I went to a hundred churches and asked them, I said, you don't get to answer the word Ishtar. What day is this? They would answer back what? Sunday. They have no idea that it's first fruits. It's almost totally gone now in the church today. What a tragedy. Jesus Christ, God himself, come in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the great I am. Jesus Christ, creator God, creator of all things. With him nothing was made that was made, John 1, 3. Jesus Christ, the ancient of days, chose. He chose the feast day of first fruits to resurrect himself. Second, or John 2, 19-21. Notice how I said that. Resurrect himself. Again, John 2, 19-21, if you want to look that up. 
All three persons of the triune Godhead raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Wouldn't you expect that? It's in the Bible for all three. The Father raises the Son, the Holy Spirit raises the Son, and the Son raises the Son. We should expect that because they're all what? Completely God, every single one. Jesus Christ resurrects himself, and he picked this day to do it on. First fruits, his day, he established first fruits, and he made sure that he was resurrected on this day. The entire triune Godhead, of course, did that as well. Christ chose, Christ controlled, Christ had authority, absolute authority, over the time, over the place, he picked three o'clock, over the place, the very place, over the very act of his death. Each and every detail, each and every element, he is omniscient God. He can't help it. It's by his very definition he has to do that. And he chose Passover as the day he would give up his life. And and notice how I said that. Here's another known known you have to have. His life cannot be taken from him. It cannot be taken. He must give it. No other possibility exists for him. That's why, by the way, if you want to just look at it logically, no one can kill God. God must give his own life up. No other possibility exists for him to die. His consent is required as a contrast with you or me. His consent is required. You need his consent to do all kinds of things. Like what? Like lead him away. Put him in shackles. Tie him to a cross. Drive a nail through his... How do you do that? You need his consent. He must participate. And that's something we should know. Our consent is not. We have no control. He is omnipotent. He has absolute control. And he chose to give his life on Passover. He chose to be entombed on unleavened bread, the feast day of unleavened bread. And after three days and three nights, and he didn't stutter, he knows how to add. He knows he's God. He's very good at math. He loves math. At 72 hours, he couldn't possibly... Oh, I get in so much trouble for this. You just cannot defend the Friday crucifixion position. It is just not going to fit with the Exodus 12 Uh, Passover template or any other or the sign of Jonah. After three days and three nights, 72 hours, the Passover pattern of Exodus 12, the sign of Jonah, he raises himself on first fruits. And we should know that. That's another no-known. Ishtar Easter is not in the Bible. It's not in Scripture. Now, please do not rush up to the podium with your Acts 12.4, where the King James has Easter there. The word that is translated Easter, or Ishtar actually, at Acts 12.4, is the Hebrew word for what? Passover. So it should say Passover in your Bible at Acts 12.4, but a lot of you it will say Easter. Now why? Passover, the first of the seven feast days of God is in Scripture. God does not call any of his seven feast days Ishtar. He doesn't do it. He would never do it. 
then why does the contemporary church insist on doing so? Has anybody seen a first fruits buffet today? Has anybody saw a first fruits egg hunt for all the boys? No. Anybody see anything? It's what, what's it called? Is it called first fruits vacation? No. How did it get into our culture? Why does the contemporary church insist on doing it? It's indefensible. It's illiteracy. Because every first fruits, I repeat this. Every first fruits, I repeat this. To do my part. To purge the Babylonian fertility from the resurrection day. I'm not winning. I'm, I'm getting killed. But then I didn't expect to win. I read ahead. I read what happens to the Laodicean church. The end times church is supposed to be a lukewarm mustard tree filled with doctrinal perversion. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. See, a mustard bush does not grow into a tree. A mustard seed grows into a mustard bush. So if you have a mustard tree that has all kinds of demonic presence in it, and that's Matthew 13, 31 through 32, the parable of the mustard tree, then that is a monstrosity. It is a mutation. And the church is described in Revelation 3.16 as a very, very rich, needing nothing, Christless mutated monstrosity filled with Satan, corrupted by Satan and his agents. And those are the times we live. So I would expect Ishtar to be here. Anyway, I was listening to the radio. Talk radio. Because I'm a what? I'm a curmudgeon. That's right. And I don't listen to music. It should be obvious. It's not that I don't like it. Not that I don't like music, I do. I just don't want to miss the end of the world. So I've got to watch my TV, and I've got to listen to my radio. And I do it while I do other things. Um, and, and I heard a well-known commentator say this, or something like it. I might not get it perfectly right, because I was walking by, and it caught my ear and my attention. Uh, he said this, I am a better person... Uh, he might have said, I am a saved person, but I think he said, I am a better person because of what a man did 2,000 years ago. Now, again, forgive me if I quoted it inaccurately, but I got most of it correctly. Essentially, that was the, the, uh, the idea of it, that he was a better person because of what a man did 2,000 years ago. Now, on the surface, that may, be, that may seem fine to you, if not profound. I'm sure it seemed fine to him and profound to him. But on this day, first fruits, this is the day again that Israel crossed over the Red Sea. The day, first fruits, that Jesus Christ designed before time began to be resurrected on. 1600 plus years later after Israel crossed the Red Sea on this very day, he, he loves his patterns, he loves his feast days, he, he loves it. He just absolutely says so. He also says something else about man's feast days, doesn't he? What does he say about man's festivals and man's tradition? He says he hates them, Amos 5.21. He hates man's feast days. Let me quote it for you. I hate, I despise your feast days. Now why would he say that? Here we are with our little fertility egg hunts on his day of resurrection. That's something we should know too, Amos 5.21. 20, we should care about that. 
I get in big trouble a lot, as you know. I am accused of intentionally ruining Ishtar, Fertility Day. I also get accused of ruining Christmas. But mostly, I get accused of ruining Ishtar, Fertility Day. I am officially the Grinch who stole Ishtar. And so, every son, every time it comes, I, I consider, I just don't have the resources, perhaps you could help me here, but I consider wearing a green suit. A little hat with a dog. Then I get things like, why, Mommy, does the pastor wear a green suit on Easter? Shh, Johnny. He's the uh, Ishtar Grinch. He will steal your candy. And all of that is true. I am crusading against Easter as a word on first fruits, and I will take the chocolate, all of the chocolate, all of it. Anyway, Jesus Christ is not a man. That is not wrong, but it is misleading. He is the God-man. If I had my board, I'd be writing the, the not a. It isn't because of what a man did. He is the God-man. He is totally God and totally fully human. He has to be sacrificial system. I'll go on and on a federal headship. I'll, I'll get into that some other time. If you need to know why, he must be fully human. And he is. But he's fully perfectly human. He is not a sinful human. It is called the mystery of godliness. The hypostatic union, 1 Timothy 3.16. God adding humanity. We are not saved by what a man did. There's hundreds of, maybe even thousands and thousands of men crucified by the Romans. They were very good at it. They loved doing it. We are not saved by what a man did 2,000 plus or minus years ago. We are saved by what the only unique God-man did. And we should know that. If I had a show where millions of people listened to me, I would not have made that misrepresentation. It's not, really. I understood it. I knew that he just didn't know what he was saying. He was repeating what he had always heard. And that's what makes me mad. That's why I rant. <clears throat> we should know that this is the unique, only God-man. It's what he did. And we celebrate. And you see, if he's not God when he's doing it, then none of us are saved. It's hopeless. He has to be God. No, there's not enough blood. We'll cover that in communion here after the buffet. Not enough flesh. He has to be God. There's not enough power. We celebrate the resurrection of the God-man on the first day of first fruits. I'm sorry, on the feast day of first fruits, which leads to the obvious question. Why did Jesus Christ pick this feast day to be resurrected. He could have he had seven choices ultimately, right? But he picks this one. Why didn't he pick Passover? Why didn't he pick unleavened bread? A lot of people don't understand why he didn't pick trumpets or atonement. But he didn't. He picked first fruits. Why? What is the feast day of first first fruits? It's the one he picks, and we should expect that makes it a very special day. Let me give you a few things that happened on this day. Because that ultimately is what solves it for you. Things happened on this day. And that tells you why he does things. He pays attention to special days. Noah's Ark. 
rested on Mount Ararat on first fruits. That is not a coincidence. There's no coincidences in Scripture. Israel crossed the Red Sea on first fruits and was on promised safe ground on Resurrection Sunday, if you will. They got to the other side of the Red Sea and they arrived on first fruits. The day when the people of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they finally the manna ceases and the very next day, that very next day is the first day they, they weren't eating that entire generation. They had eaten manna their whole lives, but the, with the day it ceased, the very next day they ate from the promised land. What did they eat, do you suspect? They picked fruit. What day do you think it happened? First fruits. Haman, the Antichrist figure in the Old Testament, is hanged on first fruits. Joah, Joah, Jonah. Do we have a Joah here? I wonder what Joah. My little meager brain is trying to tell me. I wonder what weird combination of that is. I don't know. But Jonah, and notice how I'm going to say this. Jonah is resurrected from the dead on first fruits. He's dead coming out of that fish. He's dead before the fish gets him. Read the text. And he is vomited up in Babylon, headed for Nineveh, which is what now? That's Kurdistan, that's Assyria. That is the rebirth of the Assyrian nation. We have the rebirth of Assyria in your lifetime. That's an extraordinary thing. God does it because he loves the people of Nineveh. Why? He sent Jonah there. He has the blessing between Assyria and Egypt and Israel, Isaiah 19. Why? Jonah is resurrected on first fruits. It is called the sign of Jonah. And Jesus Christ resurrects himself on first fruits. And all the days, of all the days, this is the day, the day of resurrection. Why this day? When one considers a few other things, for example, to help you figure that out. Because you should be thinking what right now? Besides why this day? How are you going to solve it? What are you thinking? Something really special happened here. Was it good or it bad? What's your choices, by the way? When one considers this, let me throw this at you, the exact place of his crucifixion, and almost all of you know that, he made sure that he was crucified, his cross was right on top of the skull of Goliath. That's 1 Samuel 17.54. It's called the garden. He is crucified in the garden of Goliath. He is crucified in the garden of Goliath. Goliath's skull. That's where he's crucified, John 19.41. The exact place where he chose to be entombed, a tomb that is carved out of rock where no one had ever been laid before, Luke 23.53, teaches you, tells you to go look at who. He's in a tomb, and the tomb is empty. And his name is Yeshua, right? So what should you do? You should go around and find all the Yeshuas who have empty tombs. Or Yahshua, any derivative of Jesus. We call we say Jesus, but it's really Yeshua in the Hebrew, right? Sometimes Yahshua, which is uh, Joshua. I'll help you. Joseph, 
of Egypt. What did he want? He made Israel vow something. You make sure you do this. You better do it. It's a vow. Moses did it. What did he want him to do? Make sure that you don't leave my bones in that tomb. I do. That's got to be an empty tomb. So I have a Yeshua in an empty tomb, right? And Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph of Egypt are actually called the same thing. Isn't that interesting? They're both called Joseph of Ramah. Both of them. Now you think, oh, probably not a coincidence. Just like beggar Lazarus and raised Lazarus. Probably not. The names they seem to be the same. It means nothing. Let's move on. Easter egg hunt. He he makes sure that he has a tomb that is carved out of a rock where no one had ever been lain before. He has Joseph of Rama do it, and the other Joseph of Rama, the second only to Pharaoh, makes sure that Israel vows to take his bones out and leave that tomb empty. And the exact place where he chooses to be delivered up to the Pharisees and where he drinks the cup, and we'll cover that in communion here pretty soon, that is the Garden of Gethsemane. So I have the Garden of Goliath's skull and I have the Garden of Olives, if you will, Olive Press. The contrast and the comparison of the two gardens, one he's crucified in, the other uh, crucified and buried in, the other is, uh, is this incredible dramatic theodicy where he and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit act out the conflict that is inside them, if you want to call it conflict. That's really a human way of saying it. But somehow they, the solution to God's infinite, omnipotent love and his infinite, omnipotent justice have to be re- reconciled. And that's what's going on in Gethsemane. And he is acting it out for you because that's the only way he communicates uh, to his disciples and to us. He's, uh, uh, after all, the teacher, isn't he not? But all these carefully decided upon locations designated by God as places he would solve and correct and restore and reconcile his fallen creation and his fallen creatures, obviously the places have deep significance and, and they have a relationship to these special days. So how do we put all of this together? What do we do? Yeah, well, we're going to do what every church in America does on this Sunday. Every church in America on this Sunday all gets together, and they all, in unison, just like us, read Leviticus. It's, a, it's an Ishtar tradition, or not. Leviticus. 23, 9 through 14. Here's your solution. This is something you should like. No. I'm trying to take it out of the thing that you don't know and that you don't know it. I'm trying to put it into something you know that you know. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheep of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. That is why every church in America today has, has sheaves everywhere. Everybody in the congregation has a sheave. They're all over the walls. They're outside. People are handing out sheaves as you come in the door. 
No, they're not. When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheep of the first fruits to, of your harvest to the priest. This is the feast day of first fruits. This is him, this is God commanding Israel what to do on this day so that they would be prepared for something. What would they be prepared for? If they did this, what would they be prepared for? He's embedding this into their culture. Why? He knows he's going to do something on this day and he wants them to see it. How'd they do? How the church doing today? Not so good. I used to have a cheer at Barlett High School when I was coaching. And I can't tag you the cheer because then, then I would get waves of email, but it wasn't. It wasn't profane, if you're thinking that. I just got them together and told them, okay, everybody get together. It's all huddle up. Because we were getting hammered. So everybody, huddle up. Okay, ready? One, three. One, two, three, we stink. Ready? One, two, three. I didn't, didn't say stink. I talked about what vacuum cleaners do. One, two, three, we stink. And they yelled it all out as loud as they could. We were down 20. And I said, because you are terrible. You guys are really bad. And, and you can't get worse, so let's, let's admit we're bad. Let's just go out there and say, we're the worst team maybe ever. And they started going out there, and I said, and every time somebody does something, you yell at him, you stink. So they're running up and down the floor, screaming at each other, you stink. You stink. And what do you think they did? They relaxed laughing, and they just rolled. They were a very good team. It was 1986 state championship team. Eventually, I don't know if that was the year or not, they just destroyed the team they were playing. The referees would come up to me and say, could you stop your team from saying we stink? <laughs> and I said to him, but they do stink. They're really bad. Look at them. They're, they're horrible. You, Walton, you stink the worst. I, I remember all their names, and they just went crazy. The one thing that got them in trouble, of course, is they got in the habit of saying, you stink, you stink, and finally one of them told the referee, <laughs> you stink. But my whole point was, know what you don't know. Please don't be proud of your trophy that you got, or your team that got rolled over 500 to nothing. Don't come up to people and tell them they know things when they don't know them. Don't feed this false sense of understanding. That's what the church is doing. The church ought to stand up today in front of every congregation and say, you are the most biblically illiterate generation that has ever lived in this country. And it isn't even close. You would flunk the moron test. That's how bad you are. That's the condition of the church, and that's biblical, by the way, Revelation 3.16. Why do you wave? Why do you go get a sheaf and hand it to the priest? You should know that. I won't ask you to take the test. Is the phone for me? It's never for me. And it could be for me just one time, please. Could be pizza. By saying, is this where we deliver the pizza? All these people that listen to us, uh, and Dave knows these statistics better than I do, but, um, but we're over, 
oh golly, we're over 12,000 downloads now at least between two sites and we don't even know what the third site is. And I bring that up because you'd think at least one of them. And there's hundreds in Australia. Somebody in Australia, if you could just send us some donuts. And I'm serious about that. Even though not on buffet day. You don't have to do it on this day. But pick another Sunday in the summer when nobody comes. We would be happy. It can be done. There's, there's technology now. Anyway, enough of that. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. You bring your sheaf to the priest and the priest waves the sheaf before the Lord. Why is he doing that? To be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. It's grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. If we were to do one thing right in this church, and we're not doing it, because why? We stink. I'd be up here with first fruit cheese. I would. I'd make you happen. I'd make you understand what this is. And I wish I had. Anyway, bring a sheaf to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. Why? Why is he doing it? What did it say? So that you can be what? Accepted. By who? What's accepted by God mean? That's good, right? Accepted by God is a good thing. That's salvation. This is God's instructions. This is what God wishes for us to do. And we ain't doing so good with this. It's first fruits. We have no sheaves. If I had a sheep test, if I asked you, you're supposed to bring something to the priest on this day, what is it? How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you would have answered a sheaf? I should have had a first fruit sheaf. How come you don't know that? Because I stink. What do you suppose is the meaning of the sheaves or the sheaf and the waving of the sheaf before God? What is he teaching? Why did God embed, as I said, place this into the very fabric of the culture of Israel? And they have neglected it, obviously. Not all of them. Some of them know. The Gentiles, we have no clue what we're doing. Like I said, duh. Ishtar egg fertility hunting, chicken, bunny, rabbit, egg thing. You see, the sheaf typifies something. It is a symbol for something. Did you figure it out? Do you know what the sheep is? It is you. You bring yourself. The sheep is a picture of you, a person, an individual. The sheaves represent people, you, me, and us. And we are waved before God by the high priest in order to be accepted. When does he do that? He does it on first fruits the day when? The day he resurrects himself. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. 
One of Jesus' titles is that he is the first fruits of the resurrected. Christ the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15.23. Jesus Christ is the first to rise from the dead, it says, Acts 26.23. Now, let me repeat that. Jesus Christ is the first to rise from the dead. And that may confuse some of you who think of Elijah's widow's son and Elisha's soldier or Lazarus or those who came out of the tombs at Christ's death and witnessed to the nation of Israel. That's my favorite story. As Christ, as Christ gave up his life, the tombs opened up and people long dead flooded out and ran into the city, resurrected. But yet it says Christ is the first fruits of the dead. First to rise from the dead. Acts 26, 23. Guess who said that, by the way? Holy Spirit through who? Paul. Pretty good Bible scholar, Paul. Especially Holy Spirit inspired. So, if that confuses you, um, ask the obvious, the most obvious of the obvious questions. Who resurrected Lazarus? Who resurrected the people that came out of the tombs? Who resurrected the soldier that fell on Elisha's bones? Who resurrected the Elijah's widowed son? Who did it? Did they do it? Can a man resurrect a man? No. So they were resurrected by who? And it's important to define things by uh, God's definition, you see, not by ours. Resurrection is an order to it. It has a military reference. Uh, it's also almost like a military parade. You watch the resurrected go by from your bleachers and they're in a particular order, okay? And first, the one who has omnipotence, the one who has the power to resurrect, the only one who has the power to resurrect, the one who waves the sheaves, he comes first in the parade because no one is resurrected unless he does it for them. No one can resurrect anybody. He not only can resurrect himself, he is the only one that resurrects us. Then the church saints, after Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, he comes first. He's first both in what he, what he does, he's also the first in the parade, if you will. Then the church saints, we come next at the rapture. So think of your parade. First Christ. Actually, you want to add the people that come out of the tomb? Go ahead. First Christ, then those guys and women. Then the church at the rapture. First Thessalonians 4.16. Followed by the Old Testament saints. They come after the rapture. And then lastly, the tribulation saints. They're in the parade because they're resurrected during the 75-day interval period of time between the tribulation and the millennium. It's called the 75-day interval. You must know what goes on in the 75-day interval. I've covered it many, many times. It is something you must know. It must be a known known. And again, don't raise your hands. Whatever you do, don't raise your hand. Because you know, I used to throw erasers at people when I was teaching, and, and if I saw a hand go up, what did I think? Target. <laughs> Oh, it's instinctive. But don't raise your hands. I just want you to answer to yourself. Can I, do I know what goes on, what the purpose of, what is accomplished in the 75-day interval? Is it a known known? Or here's even worse. Did I not know that I didn't know that before today? That's even worse. At least now it's a known unknown. We're moving, making progress. And thus the most important of all the obvious questions, not the most obvious, the most important of the 
obvious questions. Is when you see this parade go by, the one that waves the sheaves is first. The ones that come next are the sheaves, right? That he waves. And they pass by the justice and holiness of God and they are accepted. So, the most important of the obvious questions is you've got to get in that parade, baby. You've got to be a sheaf. You've got to get yourself waved. You've got to answer this question. This is what I do on this day because it's my job. So I'm going to do it. This is a really a terrible thing to do to people. I looked around and I don't see anybody that it's terrible for. The reason it's terrible because everyone will answer the question. Because I'm going to read a question. And everyone, when I read the question, I guarantee you it is impossible. Because this is a supernatural question. And everybody has to answer it. Yes or no. Everybody. You can't help yourself. And so it becomes a great blessing or it becomes a great curse. I'm ruining your life. I'm doing it on purpose. It's premeditated. It's deliberate. It's my job. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am. What's happening? He's God. I am the resurrection. Singular. There's no other resurrection. The life. No other life. He is God. He is the only hope of resurrection. He is the only resurrection. He is the only one who can and who will resurrect. He is the only life. He's the only source of life. You do not have life. I do not have life. If you think you have life, wait a few years. It's obvious you don't. This is your future right here. And I'm doing good. You should hope for this. I'm, of course, kidding. You should see me. Pretty bad. And I stink. I mean, literally, I really do. I mean, it's just the way it is. You ever have that experience where people cover their face when you talk to them? You'll have that when you get to be my age. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's cool. Plants die when you walk in the room. Anyway, where was it? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the only resurrection, the only one who will and who can. Those are important, by the way. Why does he resurrect? He must resurrect, by the way. He must resurrect to life or resurrect to punishment. He must resurrect. And he is the only source of life that exists. We do not have life. We have corrupted, slow death. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's his question. Let me repeat it again. Make sure I do it right. Jesus said to, said to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Let me do it better. Jesus said to you, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
question one way or the other. You can't help it. It's the most powerful question ever written in the Bible. And your life depends on it. And he wants you to answer that on this day. Do you believe this? 